Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 76, the Robotech episode. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm going to be taking a look at Robotech, which was one of the seminal anime shows of the 1980s and still has a pretty strong cult following throughout the United States and the world. I'm going to be handling it in two segments. In the first one, I'll be talking about the Macross Saga, which is what many of us are familiar with when we talk about Robotech. And to talk about the Macross Saga, I have a special guest, Donovan Morgan Grant. Then, after you hear Don and I talk, I'll take a brief look at the other two parts of the Robotech series, which are the Masters and the New Generation. And I'll get all of that started right after this break. What is that? <laughs> Does skin color really have any bearing on who you are as a person? I'm so upset that we don't want to see cops killing unarmed people in the streets of America. Like, why? BET Awards were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say I that? I think there's a difference between having a point of view and being a partisan. Are we trying to kill them or scare them? Killing is scary. Names, no number, just straight pleasure. No, I don't condone it, but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the big mistakes that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. <clears throat> Questions, we don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. 
Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority, but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too, but I really wish you wouldn't. As they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as, can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? I don't know. Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as assholes when everybody already thinks of them as assholes. It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook quote. Questions will be asked and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of questions we don't have answers we didn't even talk about japan in this one i think we did well <laughs> the show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com on itunes and right into the show at qnoanswers at gmail.com i just hope it's not boring to listen to like oh my god they're not going anywhere truly they don't have answers <laughs> well i can also mention more star trek episodes <laughs> back so to take a look at the first of the three series in the trilogy of series that make up robotech as a whole uh this the first one being the probably the most famous uh, called the macross saga uh i have somebody who has been on i've been on um we have podcasted together with uh with my lovely uh co-host over at required reading stella on her show batgirl the oracle and he was on a God, it must have been two or three years ago, an episode of Taking Flight, where we talked about Robin. Uh, so please welcome, for the first time to this show, uh, Donovan Morgan Grant. How are you doing, man? I'm well. Thank you very much for inviting me on um, one of the most beloved talking points in the world. Yes, and, and a, a certain person who I've already mentioned was a little annoyed. I think she used the word betrayer or something in one of our directions. Oh, she, she says that every week. We're doing. Yeah, I know, I know. So, but you know, um, she can she can talk about one of them with Shag, and it'll be okay. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but and I, I did joke that we weren't going to talk about shipping, although it is Robotech, so we are going to have to <laughs> get into last. that a little bit. But um, uh, so anyway, the the uh, the concept of of the Macross Saga just to, just to kind of give everybody an overview, and and then and Donovan and I are just going to talk a little bit of the history of the show and. Uh, what we see is the differences between the U.S. and the Japanese version, which I think you're more. Fa- I'm really only familiar with the U.S. version, um, but I think you have some familiarity with the original, uh, kind of the source material for all this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll talk characters, we'll talk moments, uh, we'll talk a little bit about whether or not this actually holds up because the show is 30 years old, or a little more mm-hmm. than 30 years old, and, and its impact on anime history. 
you're definitely going to have more of a uh, of uh, of more coherent thoughts on because my my anime is very kind of dip your toes in the water uh, stuff. Um, I've seen Akira, I've seen two or three of the. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce his name right. Miyazaki. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I've mm-hmm. seen a few of those movies. I've seen Robotech, and then I've seen whatever was offered on air as far as anime is concerned when I was a kid. So Robotech and Voltron. Um, and then uh, if my son is watching something, sometimes he'll watch something anime related, Pokemon or whatever, uh, whatever show happens to be airing at the moment where people are yelling at each other and throwing cards. Um, and then yelling at what the card does. I think that was like a Yu-Gi-Oh or something. <laughs> I just I was oh, yes. I was I was getting my oil changed or something and it was on and they were holding up these cards and they were like I use this and they go into this long description of what this does <laughs> and I'm like dude show don't tell um and they're all everybody's yelling uh but the it's it's, it's, it's important to take seriously children's card games yeah, I know right <laughs> he was trying to teach me see I Pokemon completely passed me by. Uh, because I was in college when Pokemon right. came out. So it was just nothing. And, and, and I never really got into Magic the Gathering because that was around the time. I want to say Magic the Gathering came out to like really toward the end of high school for me. And it was just something I never, never latched onto. So he was trying to teach me how to play Pokemon the other day. And I kind of got it, but I wasn't really that into it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's I think that's a generational thing. Yeah. Um, that, uh, it's, it's, I mean, I, I'm surprised, I'm not surprised, but, like, it's still kind of going on to this day. It's, it's, it's past me by now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's going to be 10 in a couple of weeks, so it's, uh, it, it got so bad that the kids, like, the school where he goes, they had to say, please don't let your kids come to school with card, card <laughs> competition games. Uh, I have a story for that, but I think I'll, I'll wait till we're done. All right. Um, so basically the Robotech, uh, appeared on American television uh, in syndication in the mid-1980s, uh, right around like 84, 85. And it was uh, produced by a, uh, or, or at least the, the American version was produced by a company called Harmony Gold. And what they did was they took, as, as I said in the, in, the, in the opener of the show, uh, they took three separate, I believe there was three completely separate uh, J- Japanese anime series and... Mm-hmm. Crushed them all together in sort of this multi-generational saga, uh, partially because uh, overall there were about 84 or 85 episodes, and that meant that they had the exact number that they needed or right around the number that they needed to get into American syndication, because American syndication orders required a certain number of of episodes or seasons and stuff. So you have Macross... Uh, the Masters and the New Generation, uh, and we're going to be talking about Macross. And, and the, the general conceit of Macross, which really is, I'd say, out of the three, the most famous, I think it actually also has the most episodes associated with it. And um, all of them are available on streaming. It'll say one season but on Netflix, but it's all like 84 episodes. Uh, so you could watch the whole thing all the way through if you the basic conceit of Robo, of the Macross saga is that uh, it's about the it's the late 1990s. This is 85, so the late 1990s was still the future. 
the world has been basically fighting World War Three, and out of nowhere, a giant spaceship appears and crash lands in the Pacific. And this spaceship uh, it is a huge battle fortress. I believe uh, Super Dimensional Fortress is the uh, official designation. Super Dimensional Fortress, SDF-1. Oh, yes. And this basically, in an almost sort of less, <laughs> less killing an entire city uh, version of Watchmen, uh, essentially helps kind of bring people together and they start working on this this thing they found and over the course of i think it's about 10 years um they build they retrofit it and build it rebuild it so that it is capable of uh being manned by a human uh crew and 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 it can fly and on and a, an entire uh island city builds up around it called Macross City. And on the and uh, they have a huge ceremony the day that they uh they launch it and they launch it off up into space and they are immediately attacked by a fleet of alien spaceships of a race of giant humanoid beings known as the Zentradi. And what happens is that in order to get away from Earth, because the Earth is in serious jeopardy by this alien attack uh, the SDF-1 attempts a space fold, which is basically like, like a warp drive thing, mm-hmm. and it winds up taking the entire city of Macross with it. And over the course of most of the show, the ship is trying to find its way back to Earth because it can't warp back to Earth because the full drive has completely disappeared. And they rebuild the city within the Battle Fortress. Um now, our main characters are, there are several, but are, are, are like three or four main characters, our, our big main character is, is probably Rick Hunter, who is this sort of hot shot, kind of maverick type of kid who isn't a military pilot yet. He's like been flying like in a stunt air show, like a flying circus air show. And yeah. he gets trapped on the, he gets trapped in like kind of the belly of the SDF one of the first few episodes with his, with this girl he's just met named Min May. <laughs> freaking Min May. And, uh, and they, they proceed to be like boyfriend and girlfriend on and off through the entire show. And he eventually becomes a, one of the, elite pilots of the Robotech Defense Force flying Veritech fighters, which are uh, which are basically like F you got a picture like F-14 Tomcat jets that can turn into robots uh, but also have like sort of a hybrid phase where they have fists and feet that fly. Um, one of the it's... closest one of the closest toys that I ever had uh, was Jetfire, Skyfire from the of the Autobots from the Transformers. And uh, and I, I'm sure a number of people who play with Transformers know what I'm talking about. Um, and his his best friend is is a is an elite pilot named Roy Falker, who up until um, I actually learned a little bit more about World War One, <laughs> is named after an actual plane. Uh, the Falker oh, yeah. the Falker was a German plane, and um, I've been reading the Enemy Ace Showcase Edition. The, those, those old Robert Kaniger, uh, Joe Kubert war store, war comics uh, featuring the German World War One flying ace Hans von something Stuffel, and he flies a Fokker triplane. 
So as awesome. I was reading it recently, it's like, oh yeah, Roy Fokker from from everything. And Roy, uh, Roy is Roy's like Rick's mentor. He is and Roy has a girlfriend named Claudia Grant, who is uh, one of the people on the bridge of the SDF one. Rick gets into this sort of almost this like this sort of this this they they don't like each other at first, but they eventually fall in love relationship with his superior officer, Lisa Lieutenant Commander Lisa Hayes. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, you've got a whole crew there, uh, and uh, basically it's this long saga of them fighting the Zentradi. The Zentradi getting more and more curious about who humans are, and more and more surprised at how they express how they like live from the day-to-day because it's implied that the the what a race called the robotech masters has bred this entrati essentially for combat and raised them essentially for combat so the idea of well sex is completely foreign to the like or the idea of basically entertainment or pleasure is, is completely foreign to the entrati and there's storylines of them sending spies into the sdf1 one of whom is miria who falls in love with another hotshot pilot named max sterling and eventually, uh, there are uh, and there are some really really great villains. You've got, and, and we're going to get into characters, but basically, they they eventually find their way home, and it does end with this huge, a couple of huge battles. One of which, like, almost completely wastes the entire Earth, mm-hmm. and then one where the SDF one at the end finally makes like a huge sacrifice for. Uh, to, to save everybody against, uh, I think it's Chiron's um, like last ditch attempt, his suicide run at the end of the very, very, very end of it. And all the while, you've got this love triangle between Rick and Lisa and Min May, and Min May just being needy and needy and annoying and having her little singing career. And and for a cartoon that was on when I was eight, nine, ten years old. And it would be on after school, so we're talking like four, four thirty in the afternoon, because this was in the days before the Disney afternoon. Um, it was pretty. Watching it now, it's pretty heavy stuff. I mean, for somebody of that age, because the, the like I said, the other anime that I remember from around then was Voltron, which Mike Bailey has compared to pornography before. What? In that the, he, it, it, I, I swear years ago he did where Voltron follows a particular pattern where you're waiting for a particular shot. And if you think about <laughs> it, it's like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Because Voltron is essential, with the exception of maybe that first like five-episode miniseries that starts, the. I'm talking about the lion one, not the car one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the exception of that first five, that that long story arc at the beginning, and maybe a few episodes here and there, Voltron essentially is, um, there's a problem, they send some sort of beast, form Voltron, kill the beast, we're done. And it's like the same, it's very, very predictable. Um, uh, Luke Giaconetti was on one of my episodes of, uh, oh, he was on In Country, we were talking about First Blood. And where he was talking about the Rambo cartoon, and he said, I think it was called, him and his brother had, I think it was called, like, the 721 Challenge. Or, or it was a certain time of day, because Rambo used to be on in the mornings before they would get to school, and they used to have a bet that the the scene where Rambo would, you know, put the bandana on and weapon up would happen exactly at the same time. And his <laughs> brother had, like, this one time in the morning, and Luke had every other one, and, like, 
like nine out of ten times his brother won. Like every single episode, it happened at the exact same time, and I think you That's could awesome. probably do that with Voltron. Uh, but Robotech was way more complicated and yes. um, much more serialized and drawn out. So yeah, so um, so uh, we're all really only going to talk about the cartoon. Uh, there were spinoff things. There were adaptations. Uh, years ago, and I'll link to this in the show notes, there was uh, a novelizations of the entire series plus the sequel series that sort of never really sort of started but was abandoned called The Sentinels uh, by uh, the author's name was Jack McKinney. It was actually two authors writing as uh, under, a, under a, a, a pseudonym. And uh, it went 18 books, with the with the last one being the end of the circle. And there were like some novels after that, but the the whole saga, the whole saga of the original three series is the first 12. The Sentinels was um, 13 through 17, and then the end of the circle was book 18, which wrapped the whole thing up and even explained how the SDF one's full drive disappeared um, and stuff like that. And, and the novels really do deviate here and there from the, from the original material. Comico, the com- comic book company, independent comic book company of the eighties, uh, published TV adaptations, uh, adaptations of the TV episodes. Um, it was probably one of the comics they were most known for aside from like Grendel and, uh, yeah, and a couple of mage things. mage the matt wagner stuff but honestly like most uh, i think that was probably their aside from grendel and mage like robotech was probably one of their, their big bet bread and butter things and they what they did was they published actually all three books simultaneously they had three separate series one for each of the separate series um after Comico folded after Robotech ended. Comico folded. They actually other companies did pick up the comic license, and there's this sort of loose. The Wikipedia page has a pretty good summary of it. There's this like loose sort of continuity where they tried to keep telling the story that started with the Sentinels, mm-hmm. but it went through like first comics and like Academy Comics and Antarctic. It like went through like three or four indie companies. Uh, before Wildstorm eventually got it in the thousands, yeah, it was it was when Wildstorm was still part of the DC. They were under the DC as an imprint, but they they hadn't been dissolved yet. But I think Wildstorm basically decided to just basically re reboot it and or retell it. And I know now yeah. is it Titan Comics? Mm-hmm. It's on my pull list. Oh yes, I'm gonna give it a few. I'm gonna give it a few issues. I want to see how how this new series is, but I think it's Titan Comics. Starting, uh, we're recording in the beginning of July. Starting within the next few months, is going to start uh, publishing a uh, a new adaptation of Robotech, and they're going to start with Macross. So I'm curious as to how that's gonna that's gonna turn out because there was a sequel series to this called The Sentinels that um, never really got off the ground. It had one. I found that it blockbuster as like a two hour movie mm-hmm. years ago. And it looked like it was obviously like a pilot episode to something that was never finished. There was the, oh, what the heck? The shadow Chronicles. Yeah. DVD, which I rented years ago and I was like, okay, this seems like it's connected to it. And there was another one that I did not watch, but so it's, it's, it's had its, it had its heyday in the eighties. It's sort of, hung around 
And then it seems like it's poised for some sort of comeback, especially since of all the other uh, all the other things were. Now I watched it in its original airing in 1985, and up until I watched it this pa- these past few months, hadn't really seen much of it. In uh, and and most of my recent memory of it was reading the novels like 15, 20 years ago. What's your background with Robotech? Like, how did you get into it? <laughs> well, um, I was born in 1989, so I'm that generation of comic book podcaster. And the only possible way I would have been able to see it is when it was airing on the then-nascent animation block, Toonami. Oh, Toonami. Um, yes. Now, uh, for those who might not know, in Cartoon Network in the late 90s and many – yeah, really bigger in the 2000s, mm-hmm. was airing various shows. They started off airing shows like Johnny Quest and the Fletcher Superman cartoons and Voltron, actually. Yeah. Um, and before they got they, – like, throughout the 2000s, uh, you know, they, they famously showed Dragon Ball Z, which I got into that then as well, and showed a lot more anime. But they also showed uh, action shows like Justice League and mm-hmm. um, Megas XLR or whatever. But um, that's how I got into Robotech. In fact, it's funny. You were mentioning Voltron. I was – a fan of Voltron as a kid, and when it was repl- it was replaced by Robotech, they took it off they took it off the air and replaced it with Robotech, and I was like, oh, what's this boring plane show? I don't want to see this. <laughs> and I started watching it, and I was like, it became my favorite show forever. <laughs> um, so yeah, I watched my brother watch it with me, and it was just, uh, I, I mean, I don't know how much I can, I can get into it specifically, you know, in terms of when I was a kid, but I was, I think I was. It was in 1998, so however mm-hmm. old I was then, I was, that's when I was watching it. And I soon around that time, I found what has now become my, my local comic book shop. I'm going the same one since I was in first grade. And they had um, the Comico, Kamiko, however you pronounce it, um, comic book adaptations. I have, I, I have every issue of the Macross Saga, uh, two copies of each issue. Oh, um, really? Because I found – I found, I found some for cheap a few months ago. But um, yeah, I, and uh, that's kind of helped me – Kind of keep up my fandom throughout the years because uh, Robotech didn't. It didn't it, after a while, I stopped airing on Toonami, but um, I got into it when I was a kid. I loved the uh, how we get into the serialized storytelling. Um, I just I, I you know when you're a kid, you enjoy things that are not meant wholly for kids. And although mm. Robotech was geared towards kids, it's 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 decidedly much more mature than a lot of animations. I mean, I, I thought I thought talk about this, that like, uh, it was airing during the 80s, so its contemporaries were Transformers and He-Man and Thundercats. G.I. Uh, Joe, yeah. G.I. Joe. And it's, I, I made a very snarky post on, on social media like a year ago about like, how how could any of those shows compare? Um, and I was, I was being kind of, you know, jerky and, and uh, facetious, but I, I kind of stand by entitled little millennial brat. Yeah, well, <laughs> which is ironic considering it's an '80s show. I, like, know, uh, I know. I mean, but like, I mean, this is a show that's that's geared for you know all ages and, and kids. But people, the, the body count is so high in this show, and you know, there's a you know adult situations and, and um, not gratuitous, mind you, but like there's alcohol and like it. It was when you're a kid and you see something that that doesn't pander towards you, you really appreciate it, and that's kind of just stuck with me forever. Um, and then later on, I learned how massively immensely influential it was towards animation and anime mm-hmm. um so i you know i i i i got into dragon ball z heavily as as a kid i did a whole four-year podcast on it i'm still trying to do it um i got into many other anime series that i i love but macross 
and Robotech has always been the one that I call my favorite because it just means so much much to me. You know, there's a nostalgia factor to it, but whenever I return to it, it never lo- loses its luster. So, yeah, I, I, I love it. I've loved it ever since I was 10 years old. Cool, yeah. What I remember about it, and this actually, Voltron was kind of the same thing for me with this, was that I remember, like, G.I. Joe, He-Man and Masters of the Universe, the Thundercats, um, some of the other shows, uh... I remember when they started because of maybe there was a cartoon, there was a commercial or something. But remember, they were also, and and we wear this, you know, this is something that every kid of the 80s will own, own up to. They were toy commercials. You know, I mean, right. every, every, the, the, there was this lightning in a bottle that they captured. They started capturing the 80s with a synergy between toy line sometimes comic book in the case of transformers and gi joe comic book tv show like it was just all avenues that had been tried previously but um really hadn't been fully realized uh until then and i think i want to give credit to star wars for that because mm-hmm. because of just the runaway success of Star Wars merchandising, the way that it was never seen before, and then toy makers realized that if we get a television show on the air, et cetera, et cetera, and there was a Robotech and there was a Voltron toy line um, put out by Matchbox later on, but I just remember these just started appearing, and I don't even think I saw the first episode of Robotech until the whole thing finished, and they just start Channel Eleven just started re-airing. They just went back right back to the beginning and started airing it again. Mm-hmm. And um, so I must have come in. In fact, I want to say I have this weird, vivid memory of one of the first episodes I ever watched was at my grandmother's house. And it was that one they're they're fighting in space and Minmay is singing. I remember that scene vividly, and I can't remember what exact episode it was. I think it one of them, the Miss Macross pageant, or something like that, or like one of those. And uh, and it was just one of those like mid May moments of like you know this is the song that got them the victory, like something like that. And I remember watching that and being like, a these look like Transformers. Yes. And I've been into Transformers, so there's your there's your hook. And B like this was really cool. And you're right it. The story, even even now, 32, 33 years later, I'm sucked into the story. I see a lot of flaws in the writing. Oh, sure. Um, I see where events, especially in, in the later season one, in the, some of the later season one is especially in the other two series, where things seem to happen off screen that should have been animated. <laughs> like there, might the also, uh, there might be also problems with the dubbing. Okay. Um, to, to like either, especially with like the latter, not so much with Macross, but I know that like um, the splicing the three stories to make them kind of co- cohesive. I mm-hmm. know there was some stuff that kind of really did not fit when the when the English dub tried to have them um, be this part of the same continuity, uh, or it was just kind of content, but or it was badly written. <laughs> <laughs> one of those three. I don't think it was particularly badly written. It was just one of those things where sometimes it was, there were some things where like nothing seemed to happen and then everything seemed to happen in like one episode. And, you know, and, and so it was like maybe some of the pacing wasn't even, but then again, this is me coming from years and years and years of having watched dramatic television now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and having, and, um, and, and, and even having watched better 
uh, even having watched really, really well-written American cartoons, like um, The Spectacular Spider-Man is just one of my favorite superhero cartoons of all sure. time. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I, I really loved how they developed the story there. I was just like, this is so well-written and so well-paced and stuff. And I like the Justice League cartoon and um, what I have seen and what I remember watching of the Teen Titans and stuff like that. So going back to something that was much older where, um, and, but it was still better than some of the stuff I've rewatched of the super friends or GI Joe or, or, you know, and I'm not to take away from those because, you know, they have a very special place in my childhood, but they don't hold up as well, uh, to that. Um, have you seen the original Japanese show? Um, I own it. it. Oh, you do? Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I've not seen every single episode of the original Superdimensional Fortress Macross, but I've seen, I think like 10 years ago, uh, they redubbed it to make it much more closer. And a very much, like, they've actually done similar things to, like, Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon, where, like, they, uh-huh. they redub it to make it more appropriate towards what the original Japanese version was. So, like, okay. it's actually, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's completely unedited. The, the, the language is more accurate to um, what the original script was, although with Robot, that's not, that's not the case. But I have. Both Robotech, the Macross Saga, and the original SDF Macross, um, both of those series I, I own. And I have, I was actually doing today, I was actually comparing uh, episodes between the English version and the Japanese version. Really? Uh, what differences are you spotting? Because this is something where this is a total blind spot for me. I really haven't seen any of it. Honestly, and I, I, I kind of, this is a bit of a rant. There's not much different at all. Um, there, I mean, I've, We'll get into like you know the transition of you know how they made Robotech I think in greater detail. I'm you know I'm sure you've heard the, the name of the man Carl Masick. Yes. Right, and he, he he's he's passed now. He's he got kind of flack from you know hardcore anime nerds eventually for like you know kind of pacing these three shows together. And there's the term Masicker, which is you know him ruining uh... the, the sacred Japanese stuff. But where it comes to Macross, and I love Robotech. That's that's when I was introduced to. But I'm sorry, like like from what I've seen. There's not anything really changed. Um, I, I I know that like they 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 miss they spell Minmay differently and um, certain scenes like mainly the changes are in the, near the last few episodes because mm-hmm. there are scenes clearly spliced from Masters or maybe even Envid that are that are kind of just stapled onto the, the end of Macross. But the pre- I would say like 95% of Macross is completely the same down to like like I was watching the scene from with Miss Macross where. Roy and Ben and, and Max are talking about Minmay's chances and whether it's rigged or not. And I compared that to like the, the SDF Macross scene, and the dialogue is exactly the same. Huh. Like, it's, like, like if it's not word for word, they're saying the same things. I mean, Ben's saying the same things, and Roy is saying the same things, and the same like meaning and intonation. There's, and I have seen plenty anime where like the meaning is entirely different. So, I I, I kind of call BS on anybody who says who, who might offer up the idea that this was. A bastardization or anything like that because it really 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 isn't it's just they do change the music uh-huh. but um that the, the plot is the same you know and the you know I, the character's motivations are the same and honestly in robotech the violence is the same oh, really? so so the, the, there's not enough difference that i would say in terms of the story that we that that's really uh makes anything any, any of our discussion matter yeah i uh I can imagine and now if you watch it, if you're streaming Robotech on Netflix, there is the one major difference you'll notice um, from the one if you watched it as a little kid on TV 
is that there's a lot more nudity than I remember. <laughs> yeah, they cut that out. <laughs> yeah, they cut that out. Um, is the ending now? I, I don't know if you've if you know, and um, I should have I should have jotted this down. I could have sworn the ending of Macross is actually slightly different. There is, yes, it is. Um, that the SDF one does not that like everybody doesn't die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For some reason, Alisa's <laughs> like, you know, oh, the last minute they pushed me to escape pod, they said that I had to live. We're like, no, they're fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't see them, but yeah, no one, no, like, they all survive. I think they're all, because, like, Chiron does crash into the SDF 1 and 2, but I, I believe that, like, like the, the bridge bunnies and Captain Global all do survive, but they're not, they're just off screen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I know that, that what they do with the um, with the Sentinels or Robotech Two, which is which Masek tried to get off the ground, and then it just it, I, I I don't know what how that fell through. Um, is the story of the SDF Three taking off for the Zentradi homeworld to find the Robotech Masters or something to that extent? Well, there is a thing in the Japanese version, um, and this is kind of detailed in like supplementary like. It's a combination of promotional material and like uh, kind of like OVAs, like animation, original animation, or original video animation, uh-huh. where they do go off into space. Like um, like Lisa's made an admiral, Rick is made an admiral, or I should say, uh-huh. Lisa is made an admiral. Then Hikari was made an admiral, and Ninmei goes with them, and they all they go they all go off to like kind of travel the stars, and they're never seen again um, in the continuity of of. of of Macross, uh-huh. so it's it's kind of the same idea, although it's not specifically the robotic matches have nothing to do with it. They kind okay. of just off and explore and disappear. Yeah, yeah. No, I I did notice just watching the um watching the 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 Robotech uh, streaming the Robotech I was, and then going right from Macross into Masters, noticing where they did splice in tiny bits and pieces of Masters into the last few episodes here and there, just to try to smooth out the continuity. Um, in some cases it was seamless and in other cases it was really, um, really noticeable. <laughs> I noticed that when we watched it a few months ago, there's actually a very funny scene that I've, I've I think I said before in, in Stella's show, uh, the episode private time where, uh, Rick stands Lisa up on a date to, to see Minmay. Yeah. There's a big change where he gives her a scarf, Lisa's scarf. And then Lisa says, I smell Minmay's perfume. So she runs away. But, uh, in the Japanese version, there were initials that said LM Heart HI, and HI is is um, Hikaru Ijio, which is his Japanese name. And he, if you pause in the American Robotech for a split second, you can actually see those initials. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's, it's like seeing the giant Japanese boy in Power Rangers at one second. <laughs> so um, let's talk characters because it, it's um, it is one of those shows that. Uh, you do remember certain characters more than others. And we've talked about Rick. I've mentioned Rick and I've mentioned Lisa. Uh, and you mentioned the bridge bunnies who were, uh, Claudia and, um, Sammy and, yes. and, and the essentially, but what I found, it was what I really found interesting about the show. And this is something that, that kind of falls into the, does this hold up thing is that you have captain global who is, uh, uh, he has a uh, almost like an Eastern European or Mediterranean accent. I, I, think. I think I think he's supposed to be Russian. Russian, okay. Um, you have you have this crew of the SDF one that's like the United Colors of Benetton. It's like a very diverse <laughs> cast, 
And the women are essentially, they refer to them, derog- oh, it's almost derogatorily as bridge bunnies, but they, <laughs> but, but they're not, but they're not like Janice Rand on the Starship Enterprise. No. She just kind of stands there and looks blonde and hot and holds whatever dat tape recorder thing she's got there. Um, <laughs> they're more like Uhura and the actual bridge crew. Mm-hmm. Yet, and I noticed that I'm watching this show and, and I noticed this about all three versions, but Macross is almost like really bad with it. This show has so much potential and fails the Bechdel test so many damn times. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> They're always talking about guys and I'm like, really? But, um, but you have a, you have a pretty, for its time, it's a pretty progressive show, although it falls into some of those tropes that are very, very common where Lisa is, Lisa's father is an admiral mm-hmm. in the Earth Defense Forces. In fact, there's one episode where, uh, where she's reassigned there and I think it's, um, Exodor's big, huge attack on Earth. Yeah, yeah, she's on Earth. And she's on Earth, and, like, they save her because the entire Alaskan base gets destroyed. Uh, But she's basically trying to live up to her father's reputation and name. And they start to go with the trope of the sort of ball-busting bitch, cold, you know, career woman you know, as opposed to sourpuss, as opposed to Min May, <laughs> who is the ingenue, who's really, really young when the show starts, too. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Let's uh, let's. Would you let's, prefer Betty or Veronica? <laughs> yeah, it is basically what it is. It's Betty or Veronica. Um, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about Rick, Rick, and Roy. Uh, how? Do, what do you like about Rick? Is I, I liked Rick as a hero. I thought he was one of the characters who actually did have a halfway decent growth arc over the course of the entire series. What was your, uh, was he ever one of your favorites? I mean, like, who are your favorites? Who are your, we can go into least favorites later, but <laughs> your general opinion of Rick, I mean, who are your favorite characters in the show? Oh, I love Rick Hunter. Um, uh, I, I see when I saw it last time, uh, it was, I was an adult <laughs> a few mm. years ago around the time that I've recorded with Stella and I kind of I can see the flaws in this character, which I think are intentional. I think that I think that like the character's flaws are made to be intentional. Whether you can put up with them or not is, an, is another point. But I don't think that like anybody's written to be completely perfect um, and flawless. So like, uh, you know, he can be kind of cocky. He's way over and over his head early in, in the uh, early in the series. Um, but I really like Rick. I think he's, he's a great like. I don't want to say, I, I hate to throw this card, but he's, he, he evokes a Spider-Man-esque kind of protagonist in that mm-hmm. you can see things through his eyes and you can see how he responds to certain things. I think a great part of his character is that, you know, for the most part, he's a, he's a robotic fighter pilot and he ascends, he go, he rises the ranks and, um, but you see him before that and I, I rewatched the first two episodes and I love the moments where, uh, especially at the end of the second episode, he's just in shock because, you know, war is happening yeah and it's it's more it's more than that it's war against gigantic aliens um like like galactus sized looking guys and there's a moment where he just kind of like you know like Roy's telling him to kind of fly off and he just kind of turns his calm off and kind of just sits there um and both the american and japanese narration kind of just explains you know he he can't 
he can't handle what he, his mind and his heart can't handle what he's just seen. And there are moments, there are terrific moments throughout the show where even though he's a protagonist and he has to like you know go into battle and be heroic, they really bring down him as a human. There's a great moment in episode six where he his Raritech, he's new on the job and his Raritech runs into uh, a Zentradi inside of a Zentradi ship and they're like frozen. They're both like they're both. It's kind of like some of that scene from Saving Private Ryan. We're kind of like mm-hmm. really scared of the other person. He has that moment. Uh, he's shot down throughout the series and kind of has to get through that. He experiences loss, um, and much of his character development is kind of through the heart, you know. Because I, Robotech or, and Macross at its heart, in my opinion, is a space opera that's a love triangle with uh, a war in the backdrop. And so mm-hmm. you kind of see him, kind of him and Haw a bit of, with with Minmay and kind of being genuinely confused with Minmay, being confused about his feelings with Lisa. And I mean, he can be a bit cocking. He can be kind of a bit of a loud sometimes. But generally, I, I really enjoy him. Um, I, he was he was usually my favorite character. I think he still might be, although Lisa gives him the run for his money later on uh, with the last time I saw it. But uh, I, I I I love like, Edward Connor. He's he's definitely one of my favorite anime characters. Yeah, I I agree with everything you said there, and I think um, one of his greatest losses is, of course, um, about halfway, th- maybe not even halfway through the show, episode eighteen. Yeah, Roy. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no, you know. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that. Um, I already said that the FTF one blows itself up at the end of the thing. We're, oh, yeah. we're good. Um, yeah, but Roy dies in episode eighteen, and um, very next episode, Ben dies. Yeah, and and that's, you know, it it he he has to. It takes him a while to do with that too, and it's it's not like all of a sudden it's not like that sort of cheesy movie thing of like, hey, now I have to man up and blah, blah, blah. You know, he, he definitely matures as a result of it, but there's, but they handle that really, really well. And, um, Roy's, uh, girlfriend, you, you have, you have Roy who's dating, uh, Claudia, mm-hmm. who, um, who I want to say for 1985 in a cartoon that was being aired at a time when children watched it, a biracial couple was pretty, uh, mm-hmm. has to be pretty progressive. I mean, but Claudia, for anybody who doesn't, isn't familiar with the character, Claudia is one of the women who works on the, one of the pilots, the SD one. And, um, I want to say she's like Lisa's second. She, she, and, she's to Lisa what Roy is to Rick. Yeah. And, uh, and she's black and there's nothing, it's never presented as anything out of the ordinary too. Right. You know, um, it, you know, because you'd have, you would have that on an American television show, like a sitcom and it would be actually the, it would be the center of the plot for that episode that, <laughs> you know, that because, because it was still, I mean, the eighties, you know, as, as, as Ford as some shows in the eighties got, a lot of them were still stuck, stuck in the same Terrible models of, of of portraying things. And it was also uh, a Japanese cartoon, mm-hmm. which 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 is especially because like you know black characters in Japan are, are I think I mean they are rarer than they are in America. So uh-huh. I think it was a very insightful because because Robotech slash Macross it has a very kind of like um, international feel to it. It doesn't yeah. really evoke a Japanese, even though some of the characters are Japanese. Uh, Roy is still Roy in the Japanese version. Claudia is still Claudia in the Japanese version. So there's, it's, it's a very international field that kind of uh, invites diversity. Yeah, I uh, I was like Global because of the, just as uh, this sort of grizzled old captain who was uh, 
chewing on whatever pipe or whatever he had and and looked yeah looked like the captain on the ship and everything like that um i would have to say that uh i thought out of um as far as designs are concerned my favorite enemy of all the series was the invid because i thought the invid scout troopers and such as looked really cool uh but the zentradi were the most compelling enemy because the zentradi were become so confused over the course of this story that <laughs> like at first they're at first they don't know what to make of humans because they've never encountered humans and they are humanoid themselves and eventually there's that very very famous episode where um lisa rick uh and you know a couple of people are on the bridge of one of the ships they're captured and so you have what the and and the the term that the Zentradi use for humans is uh, Micronians, right? And so they have them on, essentially on they have them on essentially a conference table, and Rick and Lisa kiss <laughs> to demonstrate what kissing is. And on some level they're like ew yuck, which is always funny. But on another level like these odd things like these they don't understand that they don't understand what this what this is and it and it eventually you eventually you learn that essentially the the humans in Zentradi they share some I don't know if they share some common DNA but there's a right. there's some commonality between them and some of the Zentradi actually they, they send spies in there and some of them elect to stay mm-hmm. and after after the that huge apocalyptic battle you have a whole series of episodes where the Zentradi are trying to integrate themselves into Earth's what's left of Earth's civilization, and there's a lot of strife. And again, like these are heavy themes for a television show, for a cartoon, right? Uh, that children children would watch. I mean, you had like essentially a lot some some stuff about um, you know really race relations and things. And Max and Miria, if they, if I'm gonna go with shipping and couples and this stuff, <laughs> I, Max and Miria probably my favorite couple on the show. Oh sure, because I love Miria as a character <laughs> because she's just such a badass. Yeah, and how she's sneaking around the uh, the SDF one as a spy because she feels like she's been dishonored because you know he beat her in battle but he didn't kill her and he's, she's going to find him and get her revenge and they fight each other a video game and it's just like, <laughs> yeah and and what I find funny are like little bits and pieces of how they look at human culture and since they're so used to combat they don't um they don't grasp the concept of of, of entertainment and pleasure so like the one episode where um kyle and min are in the movie and it's a kung fu movie and he's like shooting bolts out of his hands they're like they can do that <laughs> that's some funny funny stuff but it's yeah i, I really like that but i really like max and Miri are probably my second favorite like pair of of characters uh because because he's such the hot shot and she's just it's the two rivals coming together in that in that sort of way that I always love seeing. Well, Max is a great character because like, uh, well, for, he's like he's like one of the few characters who looks like he's from an anime with his blue hair. Yeah. Um, but he's he's a very nice, affable guy who's like an amazing fighter pilot, and it's implied that like he's so good because he's really good at video games. Like like near the end of the series. <laughs> <laughs> so so he's he, he's always a fan favorite. He was my he was my. Um, my brother's favorite, and uh, he's he's one that like uh, 
carry. Uh, it's good to see him kind of you know develop in the sort of in the background throughout the series. Now, there's a couple of characters who I just absolutely do not like. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> I, if I have to say, like, like, because um, not even the villains, because I like Chiron. Oh, sure, yeah. And he's got his. And what I always find funny about the end, what's the name of the woman he's with? Azonia. Azonia. It's almost like they, for all of the emotionlessness of the Zentradi, it's almost mm-hmm. like they have fallen in love with each other in this sort of sick and twisted way that they can. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because they, they take the ship down. Like, they go on a suicide run at the very, very last episode and uh, at the very, very end. And it's almost like... It's, like, it's almost like they're in love with each other at this point. Like, well, they kiss they, uh, in, in the, one, of the ep- one of the later episodes. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of interesting, like how the behavior of the humans has really affected these people beyond these, the Zentradi beyond what they uh, what they realized. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Chiron is a great villain. They, they were all great villains. I, even Britai, like characters like Britai and and um, and some of the others who turn yeah, and yeah, and some of them who turn and fight. Um, who's the um, Dolza? Dolza. Dolza is the one who destroys the Earth. Exodus is the Exeter is like the Igor. Yeah. <laughs> the Igor to, 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 to Britai. Uh, he, he just reminds me of Igor, of an Igor type of character. But yeah, Doles is the one who launches the attack on the Earth and basically decides, well, you know what, we're just going to strafe the land. And it's, it's what, what's important is that the SDF-1 is the MacGuffin of this entire thing. Because mm-hmm. the FDF, SDF-1 has this protoculture matrix, and protoculture is the energy source through which all of this technology is by which all this technology is fueled, and the SDF one has like one of the last remaining matrix matrices or like the ability to create more protoculture. So I think we're supposed to get the the idea that this civilization will start dying. Uh, well, um, uh, what, I, what I like about it is that, is that like generally the Zentradi, um Okay, yes, you have guys like Dolza and Chiron who are like Dolza just decides you know it, it's in our best interest to destroy them. Yeah, he's just kind of like screw it. <laughs> yeah, and Chiron's just a magnificent bastard. He's he's an out and out bad guy. But Britai and Exodor, they're a lot more observant. Like, oh, the Micronos are pretty good today, and they're fighting us, and yeah. they're less they're less like uh, evil. They're just they're just you know they're guys from another species. They're they're more warlike, but mm-hmm. they're very very um, reasonable, and they do yeah. kind of become good near the end. Yeah, they're they're less. They're not mustache twirling villains in the way no. that Chiron kind of is, but in a good way. <laughs> a good way. Chiron the backstabber. Yeah, but you may, you mentioned the love triangle, and I and this is why I'm I am gonna just bring the hate for a little bit about Min May <laughs> and, and and Kyle. Oh yeah, and. So Minmay is this girl that Rick, because Minmay, like really, I, I had forgotten that Minmay and Rick meet at the beginning of the show. I was under the impression she was always his girlfriend, but right. no, she like meets him. They save, he saves her, and they become boyfriend and girlfriend. And but it always seems like sort they, of? yeah, they. But it's it's almost like. But you never actually see them together long enough. She, I, I hate to, I hate to invoke this because it, it's it's. Not not something I necessarily believe in, but like the way that like she kind of treats him, it's kind of like the friend zone kind of thing, because he definitely has feelings for her, and she's mm-hmm. 
she's incredibly flighty about it and doesn't really like like display a lot of intense emotion or or real thought towards him it's almost like she's stringing him along a little bit too it's a lot like that Uh, yeah and i don't know if how if that's because she's supposed to be like really immature too because she's younger than him. I want to say at the beginning of the show, she's like 16, 17. Oh, she turns 16 in episode 8. So okay. she's 15 and he's All right. he's 19. generally 19. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think by the end of the show, a few years have gone by, which I also appreciated that they didn't mm-hmm. chart out the passage of time, but you did get the sense of by the end of the, sh- by the end of the run, these characters had aged. Yeah, you can, you can, I mean, it's very subtle, but like Rick and Minmay look definitively older than they did when they were trapped in the SDF one at the end of the series. Yeah, yeah. And um, Minmay's thing is that her parents own a restaurant in Macross, and then they, you know, they get taken with the with the with the thing, and uh, she winds up becoming basically like the biggest celebrity. Miss Macross? She is Miss Macross. She was the beauty patch Miss Macross, and she has a recording career that apparently only ever consists of, like, three songs <laughs> that they play that. over and over and over and over. It's only six. Jeez. <laughs> oh, and um, and uh, then she has a movie career, and she ends up being managed by uh, Kyle... Biggest douchebag in the world. Such a douche. Who is, um... I, isn't he her cousin? <laughs> yeah, don't, don't make me do this. <laughs> and and they they get romantically involved. <laughs> well, that's... My brother was, was asking me this recently, because he was, like, just driving in, the, in, like, in the middle... You know, one day he just said, you know, think about Robotech. Weren't they cousins? <laughs> um, and, like... Basically, it's, I don't think that they ever, like, straight up, like, I know it's really weird, because I think, like, a news reporter says, so, Kyle, are you going to propose to Minmay or whatever? Even though everyone knows her cousins. And it's definitely implied that he has feelings for her, and I think she's just about as oblivious towards him as she is about Rick. Mm-hmm. And there's a kissing scene in the movie that they do. Yes. Um, And he's, like, this, this he, he's, he's a pacifist, but he's also a jerk, but he also knows how to use martial arts. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on with him that, like doesn't make him a fun character. He, it's so, his character's evolution is really, really interesting to me, and this is the only thing that, like, makes the scenes with him watchable, is he goes from being this sort of, like, real pretentious prick about how he's like, I'm the pacifist, and I'm like, he's like, just that, and and I'm... the worst. (laughs) Oh, he, he is like, he is like every, every leftist douche that you hate that even like liberal people like me hate you oh, know yeah. like like that sort of pretentious like i'm the mo-, you know like i i set the bar for liberalism and you don't you don't achieve it like that type of guy holier than thou yeah kind of. holier than thou shit but by the end he's like a total like booze hound <laughs> booze hound who's like obsessed with how much money they're making <laughs> Like and all it's, but it's pretty that's actually it's actually a really good you know he he loses all of his principles and yeah. so that's the only thing i like about the I, okay the only thing i like about the character is his downfall but but i like that aspect of it because it does show some character development and um i this is one of those things where i think my head canon is kind of 
interfering or maybe my perception i have to go back and re- reread the mckinney novels i want to something in my head when when i watch those episodes where they're doing concerts um all of all around these sort of rebuilding parts of earth and the crowds are getting smaller and smaller because you know people have better things to do and minmay's kind of played out at that point and she's <laughs> exhausted Mm-hmm. And he's just pushing her. And I remember those scenes as being way more abusive than they actually are on the show. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just, again, maybe this is my in my head, or maybe in the novel, that that was what I imagined. That, like, they never show him really abusing her, but... He does, like, throw a drink in her face. He does, he does. But, like, you get... I, I was... You get that there's, like, a subtext that... He and they wouldn't show it on a cartoon. They wouldn't go that far on a cartoon, but there is almost like a subtext, or at least in my head, I'm seeing a subtext of like he was becoming, or he was going to become abusive, right? Because of because just she was ruining things in his mind. Yeah, um, I I I was actually telling my brother the other day when I said I was going to record about this. Like I thought that like he disappointed. One of the dis- one of the very few disappointments I have of the series is that he kind of gets away with a lot of this stuff because he doesn't really have a moment where someone kind of takes it to him yeah like, like rick and rick and like you know there's that, i was watching that scene uh, with them in the restaurant when they meet him and he said you know i don't like the military because i don't like war and everyone was like well we don't like war either but you know it doesn't mean we like to kill people and yeah. like he 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 gets away from the series because he leaves the series before this before the series ends and like nothing bad explicitly hap- expressly happens to him um, he's never like punched in the face. Like Rick never. There's no comeuppance. <laughs> exactly, and that's the one of the things. That, even like his last scene where he's talking to Minmay, he's yelling at her, and he gets to be, be a lot more gentle and talks about her potential. And then he just like walks so off to the sunset. He's like, "Get back here so I can smack you." Because screw him. Yeah, but it's like the behavior, the way they have it portrayed is like textbook abuse. Where like he's putting her down, and the next point he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry," and blah blah blah, and like you know, and they never actually show him hitting her, but. You know, he's he's spiraling further and further downward. I also had in my head I was like, wait, I thought he took her with him in his in that sense. <clears throat> like like she spiraled downward and everything, but no, she just goes back to Rick. Yeah. She and, runs away. And runs away to him and then there's this whole thing because he's living with Lisa. Or No, he's not. No, they're he's not. not. They're not. They're they're yeah. they're always over at each other's places. She's always telling him to make his bed. Um she's mothering him essentially so that's that's the weird thing it's like this weird dynamic that gets established when they're on the barracks on earth Mm -hmm. and uh which i actually did appreciate because it was uh it was a really good way of showing how hard a time they are to have they're having adjusting to this aftermath of what had happened right you know before everything goes completely crap again but but yeah min my and kyle just Ugh. I don't think we talked sufficiently about like the con- the controversial character of Minmay <laughs> because uh, um like, nobody up. likes Minmay. <laughs> she it's just and I'm not it, this is this is in no and it's in no way intended to be sexist or misogynist or anything. She's just an irritating character. There are plenty of great female characters in the show and she's not one of them. Yo, hell no. No, she she's like She's almost like you could make her a little boy, and she'd still be just as annoying. She's just this yeah. annoying 
character who like <laughs> you're right she's stringing him along and then she seems to be needy at like all the exactly wrong moments she calls to brag about i'm okay i just passed out after like ben dixon was disintegrated and yeah. rick just hangs up on her <laughs> makes me laugh so hard yeah well, or she it, just goes and visits rick and like passes out on his hospital bed when he has a bandaged head yeah and it's just like it's how many ways can min may make this about her which is something that that it's it's just this recurring motif she never i don't think she ever really grows as a character I, mean, I think she kind of does near the end, um, but like it's it's to the very very end. Um, like she she you know she just when Lisa and Rick resign to be together, she swallows her pride and takes it. Um, and I think that she was a little in the Christmas episode, which is the penultimate episode, where she goes to Rick. She's kind of whiny, but she's a little, you know, the the, the years are kind of worn on where she's still men made, but she's not as immature and young as as she was throughout the majority of the series because like. I mean, I gotta say it again. Like, you know, it's it's fun to to have people hate on Min May because it's so easy. For one thing, it's it's blatantly intentional um, because because the characters mm-hmm. do react to her. Like like no one just like doesn't react. Like Rick reacts to it. Kyle reacts to it. I, I think Lisa reacts to it. Um, and it's funny because like she's actually kind of the icon of the series, especially in I Japan. <laughs> um, like her voice actress uh, Mara Ijima, uh was like a young. Like a uh, voice actor who could really sing, and voicing Minmay launched her into superstardom in Japan. Oh, really? She was a to this day, she's a major uh, like pop idol on her own right, and voicing Minmay was the thing. It was like the, it was like American Idol with like Kelly Clarkson. Like that's what got her to a big deal. Um, in fact, like when they, when they redubbed uh, the series to make it more accurate to, to the original Macross, she actually voiced her in the English version. Oh, really? Because uh, she was that big, and it's because like in Minmay is, is seen in all the Japanese um, merchandise as like the big like mascot of the series, but she genuinely is very irritating. <laughs> she she looks like if if I, I guess and maybe it is just I, I was wondering and I had been wondering if this was just because this was one of the first animes I ever watched. She looks to me like to be almost the prototype or the stereotype of the anime girl. The Genki girl, like the hyper energy girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's probably intentional and everything, but yeah, that that's interesting because yeah, she's the most she's like quite possibly the most irritating character like ever. And I don't I don't like Kyle at all. Whereas with Minmay, I I have an appreciation for. I kind of like her despite everything because she makes me laugh, and mm-hmm. also everyone gritting their teeth around her also makes me laugh. I hated her when I was a kid though. Kyle, Kyle's a good character in that you're supposed to hate him, and mm-hmm. they do a very good job with that. With her, it's like I don't know if I'm supposed to like her or not. That's a good point. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know if she's supposed to be like tolerated or if her immaturity is is, or if they did her immaturity too well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> moving on to we we've brought up some moments here or there, but uh, and like I said, it's it's hard to cover like a. Uh, such a long batch of episodes in one, you know, segment of like you know an hour or two. Uh, so I, I just I had I'd written on my outline, you know, like our our favorite or least moments, or, or we had talked about our favorite or least moments of the show, things that stand out to us um, as either kind of the iconic moments of the show. Uh, I would say the Miss Macross project probably is one of them. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Everybody remember. I just remember that really, really vividly. And, um, or just certain moments that just resonate with you, even if they're not the, uh, not like the most famous moments. So I'll let, I'll let you go first. Oh, thank you. Um, I mentioned the scene at the end of episode two where, where Rick kind of goes into shock. Um, mm-hmm. or I should even start a, a little earlier in that episode when he's rescuing Minmay and she's like, you know, being grabbed by like the, 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 uh, the guardian Veritex arm. It's blown off and Rick has to save her. She's falling. It's, it's very well animated. And, um, it's, I think it's one of the iconic scenes because, uh, and I'll talk, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but like in the, um, in the film adaptation, Do You Remember Love? That was one of the early scenes that they adapted for that film where he's, he has to open up his canopy and, and save her and like pull her in and he almost falls out. So that, that's a like great scene. Um, but in terms of moments, I, well, this was a moment, more of a scene that I really like. Um, uh, Miss Macross is great. Uh, one of my favorite episodes was episode eight where he's promoted. And I think to to Rick is promoted to lieutenant, and we first mm-hmm. meet Max Sterling and Ben Dixon, and it's Minmay's six, sweet sixteen birthday. I, I, that was always one of my favorite episodes as a kid, um, and, and I, was, I think it's also it's not the first time we meet Chiron, but it's the first time like Rick and Chiron had that kind of standoff. Yeah, so it was it was, it was pretty dynamic. Um, did you want to go back and forth in terms of yeah, episodes sure. Um, I just I'm trying to think of I'm, I I didn't write down specific episodes and episode numbers, but I do remember like certain scenes or episodes or shows and one that I one that I've come back to is it's a Lisa thing of where they end up in Mars base. Yes. And so she's seven. remembering her um her dead uh, fiance and mm-hmm. they end up having to blow the whole thing and, and but the, there's there's some real uh pathos in, in, in some of those things. And another thing was uh, the whole thing with her at the Alaska base. Right. And that whole de- that whole devastating attack on Earth. Even when I was watching it now, I was like, "Holy crap! This is just brutal." You see a lot of people die. Yeah, a little girl and, and a guy, and she she watches her father blow up. Yeah, I was like, "Wow, this is brutal." But the fact that like you know they get her out of there and and um, but that she had been basically busted down to doing that because her dad was being overprotective and. It just, uh, I, I thought that was always really, really well played. I, if I'm going back to all the way to the beginning of the series, I really like those first few battle scenes that are in the city streets between the battleoids and the and the Veritex and stuff because I just think they're really, really well animated and really, really well staged, and mm-hmm. it's a great hook into the show. Because you're like, wow, this is the potential this show has. I'm gonna keep sticking around for it. Well, in the um, in the intro, uh, which wasn't the one that I was used to, because I, I, I should actually I'll link, I'll link you later the uh, the tsunami intro, which is okay. awesome. But um, in the intro sequence, when Rick, when you see Rick fly down into the city, and I love the, it's such a well animated scene where like his he goes in the guardian mode, which is like you know the plane version with the arms and legs, and then he mm-hmm. turns it, he quickly transforms into battleoid mode, which is the big robot. Does a literally does a barrel roll and just shoots upwards towards uh, a battle pod and blows up that's like one of the most well animated animated scenes i've ever seen yeah. and it's such an action-packed shot it's like oh, holy crap this is awesome yeah it's a lot there's a lot in one sequence which would have definitely caught your eye in the 80s where action was much more static on a lot of cartoons mm-hmm. um, we had a running joke where you ever noticed that when a that the cobra 
I think the Joe, um, the Joes fired blue and the Cobras fired red, but when a Cobra would pick up a Joe gun, all of a sudden it would start firing the Cobra color and stuff. (laughs) Or like the, and I love me some Hanna-Barbera, but the old Scooby-Doo bit where you could clearly tell that they're recycling the the background five times to save money on, um, you know, save money in time, you know, like they're running through a hallway and you pass the same window four times. Um, there's none of that in in sequences like that. The space battle right. sequences are amazing. The dogfight sequences are amazing. Absolutely. Um, how how they don't run out of ammo sooner, I don't know. Sometimes I do, but yeah, yeah, yeah mostly. And of course, the the I think the other big famous thing, and this is like I said, this is what I really really remember, and actually really like the kiss between Rick and Lisa. On the, oh, uh, um, in front of the, the Zentradi. In front of the Zentradi. I was, I was, I was going to bring that up too. It's, 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 it's again. There's, there's moments that are just iconic. That's an iconic moment. It's the first kiss between them. It's just, a, it's just a great image of you see them kissing in front of these gigantic, horrified aliens that are just like, gross, bro. <laughs> and She's um, got cooties. I also love the image of Max and his battleoid dressed as a Zentradi. <laughs> It's yes. really goofy, but yes. it's awesome. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Um, I'm, trying to th- I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of of, of others that um, that we haven't already mentioned just in, in our in our conversation already. Uh, it actually one of them, and, and this was because uh, I have I have one issue of the comic uh, from Comico, and it was it's issue twenty. One, I think it's the one where uh, it's the movie premiere one. Yes, where Rick and Lisa get uh, Rick, uh, and for part of the uh, part of the comic, Rick and Lisa are stuck in the bowels of the ship mm-hmm. because there was a transformation toward the end of the thing, and they had to run to find shelter, or they were trying to get back to the bridge, and they get lost and they're stuck, and it's just it's almost like a bottle episode. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, but like, and and if you think about it, like, not a whole heck of a lot of action really, really happens in that episode. But it's really well done, in that you're still in, you're still, you're still pretty gripped by it. That you could, you have this very, um, you have this development of like their relationship through this, through this moment where they're kind of stuck together and. All the little things that get on each on their nerves about each other are like right there for you, and that was a pretty well written relationship. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask because um, I, th- I think we, I don't know if we got into her, too much detail with her as other characters, but what did you think of Lisa Hayes in this show? I've always liked her as mm-hmm. a character. Uh, the way she was drawn, she kind of looked like Helen Hunt or Lily Silbieski. <laughs> I mean, it's just like that's just the way she looks. I've always liked her. Um, I thought that uh, I, I I I liked that they gave her they made her slightly more insecure than she came off. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that, and I, and I thought that her conflict over toward the end, especially that, that, that another episode, the one where he stands her up. Oh, like halfway across the world, he's had like halfway across the country with Min May. <laughs> they have her upset, but I just—it's like 
it makes total sense. Like, she's not being, like, a wet blanket girlfriend about it. It's like, no, like, she has every right to be upset. And I remember that. I just thought that was, um, that was pretty well written. And that was a very realistic sort of, of, of scenario and reaction. And her frustrations with the fact that she's almost, like, mothering this guy toward the end of the series, too. That's one of my uh, favorite. That's, 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 that's like a... I'm pretty sure that's my favorite episode. If, it, if it's not, it's one of my favorites because it's just it was late in the series. It's after like the main Robotech War, so like there's a lot of downtime in the, in the at the end of the series, which yes. I actually like. Um, it should be said that like originally in the Japanese uh, airing, they were commissioned for 26 episodes, mm-hmm. and because I think they were they were scheduled for 30 episodes, but the ratings weren't what they wanted, so they cut it to 26. But near the end of his run. The, the ratings got, got really good, so they actually made a, a further 10 episodes, which is why the 36 episodes is kind of, you know, kind of odd. So, like, after Dolza's dead, you kind of do the time skip. All that stuff is sort of, like, um, was kind of, like, written, I won't say the last minute, but it wasn't in the original outline. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of character development. And, and honestly, because at that point, you, you, you sort of see the storyline seemingly close. Like, Rick tells Meme he loves her, but he seemingly goes off with Lisa. But they actually make it more realistic later on and that's one of the episodes that i find that i love because it's entirely there's no battles at all there's entirely character based yeah and you do get a chance to see like how far these characters have come from the very first episode of the episodes of the show and like how much they have gone through and how those relationships and just how them these people have evolved in a way that you don't always get even on television dramas you don't you know regular television dramas you don't always get that from characters in that sort of way and and i i i think you're right like i like the way it does slow down there and but then it has that big climactic fight at the end there yes yeah uh, uh which i was gonna, i don't know linky this you can watch this whenever but this is only like 35 seconds but that's the act that tsunami intro yeah okay um I'll, I'll throw that up in the show notes too Oh, if awesome. I play it now, Skype's gonna. <laughs> well, I mean, like uh, the the Robotech intro, it's very uh, theatrical and, and bombastic, and the mm-hmm. Japanese version is the same animation, but even more operatic music. This is just like a hyper fast hardcore. It kind of shows you how intense the show gets, but you can that's yeah. whenever. Um, I was gonna think of another favorite moment. I guess kind of. I mean, I guess we. Uh, what did you think about when uh, about uh, uh, the episode? Uh, the death of Roy Foker. That was done a lot better than I remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, again, like me not watching this for 30 years and then only having the novels and then having very fuzzy memories of it because I read most of the novels in the early 90s and I really never came back to them. I had always been under the impression that his, he just died in an explosion and he doesn't. He goes home to die. He goes home to die. And I'm like, wow. I I was actually, I thought that was even, not that I like characters dying like that, but I was like, that's even better. Mm -hmm. Because you, because then you have Claudia who like, again, Claudia, I'm the same way. Claudia was one of my favorite characters in a way that I remembered her from when I watched it as a kid. But like in the second time around, Claudia was one of my favorite characters. And part of it was because they're just, all the crap she had to go through, and then the fact that she was able to be, be very strong from that. Um, but yeah, it was just uh, it, it's it's devastatingly sad to see 
him die and then knowing that she's alone and and uh and 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 rick it's not just and and i like the fact that they don't just make it about rick too and i think that was the other thing about roy's death that i really really liked yeah because uh it's it's you see collier because he falls over and his back is bleeding from getting shot up in the plane yeah uh which is brutal like they let that they showed that on the children's cartoon yeah um, but I love the last scene where you're still with how sad Claudia is, and then you go to Rick's hospital bed, and Lisa breaks it to him, and it's just there's not there's no like conclusive emotion to it. It's just it, this episode leaves on the loss that he's dead, and like Rick is just frozen, and the voice acting is so good. Uh, uh, it's 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 iconic. Yeah, this is this is something that that of, of an age when cartoons were so disposable. It um it really has uh it really takes itself beyond that disposability and that's yes. one of the things that does it and and um and the last couple of points things we were going to talk about was uh, one of the questions I had was uh, was does this hold up and I know I criticize that some of its pacing issues here and there and I see the pacing issues are actually even say the, some of the pacing issues are actually even worse in later in the other two series than than in Macross. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes the opening, cause like every show, every episode of the show begins with an opening narration that will, in some cases, I really liked it because I had watched like a few episodes and then it took, took a few days off and I came back and I'm like, all right, what happened in the last episode? And that like, they kind of sum up what happened in the previous episode. So that was helpful. But then there are some times where like, wait, you're summing up something that happened between the episodes. And I'm like, <laughs> Why didn't you show that to us? But that does tend to happen in the other two series more than in Macross. Uh, but yeah, so aside from those, though, and aside from some dialogue being a little bit, you know, maybe it's, it's lost in translation or what. It's early, early dubbing. They can have kind of redundant dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And and some of the you know, for, cause, cause, and, and also for, for every good voice performance in, say, the episode that we were just talking about where Roy dies – there are some voice performances in some episodes which are just, just <laughs> really agonizing to watch. Well, Reba, Reba West, uh, Min May, I think is, is so accurate to her character that like her voice can get <laughs> very high pitched. Yeah. Mainly, I'm thinking um, in the last episode where Lisa tells Rick she loves him and she's going off and he'll never see her again. And he's like, Lisa, wait. And <laughs> Vinva literally says, wait, you can't go. What about me? <laughs> Which basically like, sums up. up that character in one sentence. I know. I know. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, my God. But I don't know. I still think it holds up. In fact, I think I could. I mean, I'm. I don't know if I'm going to put it in for my ten year old. Maybe when he's a little bit older, because of the the uncensored version that's available on Netflix. But I, I think that you could put this on air now, and people would watch it because, like, they may on some level be like, "Wow, why is this old cartoon on?" But I, a, I think the animation holds up incredibly well, and B, you get sucked into the story mm-hmm. in a way that. The nostalgia factor, the nostalgia is the hook if you're somebody like you or me, but then you get sucked into the story and you forget about the nostalgia, and that's the mark of a really, really good, really good show. Yeah, like you were saying, some of the dialogue in, in ways of how they have to dub the, dub the episodes are a little grating, and those don't hold up 
all the time, but generally, like when I was watching the first episode, it's just like this is still dramatic as hell. Like, like there's that scene where Global is like, you know, I I I I'd, I'd hoped I'd never see this, I'd live to see this day where we've achieved peace and now we have to go to war. Here we go again. All right, battle stations. This is like this is they treat the nature of war so seriously without it being depressed. Well, sometimes it's depressing, but like without it being like bleak, uh, yeah. and just and keeps you invested that it's a. It, it's it's so well written, um, and and it, and it, yeah, it, it holds up. It, it deserves a spot as one of the best uh, recognized anime shows. Yeah. So what? Um, so to, to to bring us out a little bit uh, to close us up a little bit. Um, like I said, you have way more experience with anime than I do, and I know this is one of the probably one of the most well known, um, especially during its time among people who knew nothing of anime. Um, what is what impact did this have on the history of the of the genre? Well, and it was done in, in this in the eighties. The original version, uh, Superdimensional Fortress Macross, was done in eighty two, eighty three, and Robotech was eighty five. So it was around the big robot era where mm-hmm. you had shows like Gundam and Voltron, and, and of course later on in the nineties they did Macross Plus, which is which is, Macross Plus in and of itself. Uh, is a very celebrated film and actually launched the careers of a lot of like anime uh, industry icons, like the director and Yoko Kano did the music. Mm. Um, but Macross, like, like original Macross itself, it spawned several uh, uh, subsequent series. Uh, I, I've not seen, I've not seen, I've not seen hardly any of them. I saw Macross Plus. I'm not seeing the ones like Macross Seven, Macross Two, Lovers Live Again. I think. But I want to mention. Uh, this is never dubbed. This is never made English in America. But like, there was a movie, and anime does this at times, where they'll make sort of like a film version of of uh, of its series and kind of condense the events. Like, let's say the original Star Wars, like the entire Star Wars from the beginning to end, was like a season of a television show. Uh-huh. And Star Wars, the the the, the, the most picture, they condense all the events where, you know, instead of Luke meeting Han in episode five, he meets him in, in a movie, that kind of thing. That's, okay. Anime does it at times. Like, they do with Dragon Ball, they've done that with other shows, and uh, they did it with Macross. There's a movie called Do You Remember Love, which is which condenses the story. And, and there's some differences. Like, uh, it starts off, Rick is already a pilot, and Min is already a pop, a pop idol. Um, okay. But but they do repeat some elements. Um, like they repeat the whole thing of them getting stuck in the ship together and getting to know each other and him having a crush on her. Um, they repeat uh, them getting they sort of they sort of repeat getting kidnapped by the, uh, the aliens. But there are key differences. Um, like for instance, uh, Ben May and Kyle are actually kidnapped by the aliens and they kind of disappear for a little bit, which makes Rick and Lisa sort of fall in love. Um, a very interesting difference is that. In this series, Max and Miria, like Miria is originally a Centrati. She, she shrinks down to Micronian size, meets Max and falls in love. They switch it where Max fights Miria and she comes out of her ship as a giant, you know, woman alien. And he falls in love and joins their side. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's all good at the end because at the end, like, they both team up to, like, fight the Centrati because, you know, they believe in love and not war. Um, they repeat certain, some elements are repeated but are done differently, like the deaths of Roy and Ben. Um, some of the like, like the, the designs of Brita and Exodor are different, and but like they spiritually is is very much the same, and they drive the love triangle up to like eleven. It's <laughs> it's so dramatic, and I, and I love it. I, I watched it with Stella, and Stella was like, "This is so awkward. I can't handle this." Um, there's a great scene. Wait, where Stella can't handle shipping? 
and oh, yeah. triangles. Stella. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she she was like, because because um, there was a great scene where where Ben May returns, um, and by that time she, she she thinks that she can get back together with Rick. Rick has gotten together with Lisa in the interim, and so he's like awkwardly trying to make her coffee. And then Min May comes in behind and is like, I love you. I don't know what's going on with that other woman, but I love you. And then Lisa comes in. And then the film just, like, stops for, like, ten seconds on, like, this awkward, like, uh, kind of moment. And there's it's, – it's, it's, it's right out of a soap opera. And it's so – and also, it's just immaculately um, animated. And you can find it on YouTube, okay. uh, subtitles. Uh, it's about – 90 minutes, maybe two hours, but 90 minutes. It's worth your time if you're, if you're into Robotech because you'll be familiar with the story, and it's a great alternate version of the story. Yeah. Now, I, I'm, I have to look this up because I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm right here, but wasn't like there a animated movie that was sort of produced, but I think it was actually produced but never released, or it was released like, in, like Canon Films put it out? In like eighty, no, like in eighty six. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I don't know. There, there was like a Robotech the movie that they were putting together, and I think it's yeah. one of those like huge failures or something. I have to look that up and see. If I a lot of the, that. a lot of the sequential because they tried to copy the success of Macross a lot. Yeah. A lot of that stuff's kind of confusing. Like that, like the Sentinel stuff is garbage. It's like the Dragon Ball GT of of, of Robotech. Mm-hmm. It's it's because like the animation is really. I mean, you see, they do stuff like you see Rick and Lisa get married, but yeah. it's really badly animated. Um, and I've seen, I've even seen some of the comics and it's just pathetically drawn. It's, it's, it's not, it's also, it doesn't really, it's not really worth, uh, seeking out because like the actual canon stuff to the Japanese stuff is, is kind of easier to kind of take into. And it's, and the story is fine how it is. I, I don't mind the way it ends. So I don't, I don't mind nothing else being made from it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all the supplementary material to me yeah. is, is, is kind of not worth your time. Yeah. And every once in a while I hear, um, rumors or something of something being in development it could probably be stuck in development hell of a live action version or something oh uh, yeah here and there but you know that well um every year at comic con there's always a robotech panel um tommy mm. yoon is a guy who kind of just keeps the franchise alive and he's talked about i still have gone there where they talked about they're they're developing a movie they're trying to develop a movie it, it, it's been a very slow process it's development help but they're still going for it um, and like you mentioned, they're coming out with the Titans comics in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, no matter how long it, it takes to get, to get anything going, if it ever does, there is definitely an audience for it. And the, and the process of a live-action movie is very interesting, especially recently with a lot of like the live-action anime adaptations like Ghost in the Shell or Death Note that they're doing now. Well, or where... Pacific Rim did really well. And right. that's a probably good, a decent benchmark for it because it's a mecha... I mean, it's Mecha and um, monsters stuff. Yeah, uh, but you're you're seeing robots fighting on screen. So, in, like, and and not not that these movies are any good. In fact, they're shit. But like the Transformers <laughs> movies have been successful. So there there's a precedent now mm-hmm. for something like this. I feel that like of all the anime shows, it could be. It's not the one that's the hardest to adapt. But you, I I I I, I don't want to see it. Certain things ruined. I mean, it has to be. Yeah. Like, what, what would you want to see in a live-action Robotech film? I don't know. That's the thing. It, it would have to be. It have to be more than one film. Like the Macross saga, or like, or like uh, all three of them. 
the, the Macross saga would have would be more than one film. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. It's a TV show. I mean, it honestly is a TV show. I mean, you have you could easily condense a, uh, some of the first few episodes into a, a movie, but I think you could probably get like a whole trilogy or a four movie set out of these 36 episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at least a, a at least a, a trilogy. Um, cause you could probably trim There's There's fat to trim in there, but, um, I mean, if they could, if they could stretch out Mockingjay into two films, the first of which was completely unnecessary, mm-hmm. um, they could do three or four of this. And I think that was the, so like the first one might end, I don't know, maybe around Roy's death or maybe, you right. know, I, I don't know. I don't know where you would split it up, but yeah, I, I would, uh, I would be very wary of, um, of how they, uh, how they portray some of the characters or what they cut out and things like that. And what they would do with the love triangle. Right. Yeah, exactly. You would need somebody, you would need characters to like, um, you know, like 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 uh, properly because th- these guys aren't really archetypes. I mean, they're kind of archetypes, but they're they are very human. Yeah. And um, so like I, I they, I've heard interviews of people doing the Titans comics that like they're kind of retelling the macro story, and the the first thing they realized they had to do was they had to make men more likable. <laughs> so that's one thing that like I, I I don't I don't mind how she is in the series. I really don't. And but I understand that like that's not always palatable towards some towards someone watching it for the first time. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you. Yeah, I'm thinking if you do it in threes, I think to me like the series does change around Roy's death. Like, that's kind of where it starts to get real, mm-hmm. um, if it wasn't already. And then maybe from there to like when the whole attack on Earth and Dolza happens, and then use sort of like the last ten episodes as the last film where it's a lot more personal and kind of you know finishes up Chiron's story and the triangle between Lisa, Rick, and Minmay. Yeah, and honestly. If you were to expand it beyond Macross to something like Masters and the New Generation, I don't even know if you can get more than one movie out of Masters. Mm. It's so it drags. So there's so much you can cut out of Masters. New Generation maybe two or or just one movie as well because it because that's essentially like one big road story anyway. Mm-hmm. So you could totally Mad Max it and get like. You don't. You don't have to have them. As long as you establish the characters, you don't have to have them do every single stop they do. You know, there's there the, that particular series is. This happens at the beginning. This is my mission. We hit the mission in the la- We finish the mission in the last few episodes. So that could be condensed into a film or two films, depending on depending on how much you wanted to uh, to bleed out of the franchise, but. But you're right, yeah. It's, it's there's Macross itself is way too dense mm-hmm. to just be one movie. I'm, I'd just be curious as to if they ever get it out of development hell. I know that I don't know what all the details are. I'm pretty sure that part of it has to do with the rights. And you know who was up for? You know who was trying to get it off the ground about ten years ago? Tobey Maguire. Oh, that's right. That's right. I almost said Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but no, Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I, I think I think back then he might have done a decent Rick Hunter, but like now you would you would you would think you would need somebody um, better. Yeah, although they'd cast like that. This this would never be a good. This actually 
I, I could picture this on the CW with the type of CW casting that, you know, Ugh. I mean, but like, that's how you would ruin it. But, you know, could yeah. you not picture this? Uh, like, make, yeah, yeah they, would, they would make it too goopy, too, like, because Robotech has a certain, like, uncompromising quality to it that, like, the CW would, like, would, like, flatten out to kind of pander to a, a, a demographic. Yeah. Uh, anyway. But, um, but like I said, uh, even, even if you, if you don't want to watch the other, uh, six, 50 or so episodes that are available, uh, for streaming, uh, the entire Macro Saga is available on Netflix at the moment. This is July of 2017, and it's been available for a while. Uh, and the DVDs are still out there, um, and so it is way more available than it was 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago, much to our delight. Uh, yes. And and I uh, I wholeheartedly recommend uh, recommend at least checking checking this out, and you'll hear my opinions on the Robotech Masters and the Robotech New Generation series uh, in the next segment will be coming after the break. But before we go, uh, Don, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Well, now, uh, first, thank you very, thank you very much for uh, inviting me and indulging me in a very particular <laughs> pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Um, the main thing I do now is I do a podcast called Questions We Don't Have Answers. I, is, uh, I co-host it with Harrison Chute, and basically we have conversations on every week or most weeks out of the day, like, like five weeks in a row, basically. Uh, just we have a topic and we try to have a very straight, a very like like kind of investigative and kind of emotional discussion about it, and like they're kind of sociopolitical. You know, we can get into politics, we can get into sociology. Um, they, they, a lot of times we we do involve our personal geekeries. He's a sci-fi guy. I'm a comics guy, but we talk about things like you know, um, which is worse, exclusionism or tokenism. Um, you know, can is there morality and attraction? Uh, is killing ever justified? Can you fall in love with a fictional character? Um, uh, how does one you know really uh, truly embody their own race? Is there such thing as race? Uh, uh, transracialism, stuff, fun stuff like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that can be fun or not, fu- not so fun. But it's a show that I'm really proud of, and um, we actually have through our weekly schedule uh, over 30 episodes in less than a year. You can find us on QNoAnswers.com. We're on iTunes. We're also on Twitter, um, and that's a, that's the gig that it's most frequent. You can kind of find me the most at. Um, I still do uh, the comic book film review, review spelled R-E-V-U-E. That's basically a monthly uh, comic book film podcast. I just do it with my buddies, Bertoni, um, uh, Chris, and Stella, sometimes more than others, depending on our busy schedules. And uh, um, you can find us at cbfreview.lipson.com. Uh, as of this recording, tomorrow we're set to talk about Spider-Man Homecoming. The last episode we had, we talked about Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and we're also on iTunes. And after that, I want to say that I'm still trying to do – like Jesse and I, you know, we, we finished Dragon Ball Z in our next mission podcast. We took a year off. We came back to, to try to do Dragon Ball Super, and it's been very hard to schedule that. Um, but we do – we are trying to catch up and review that at least monthly. I say monthly. It's been like two months since we've done an episode. But um, you, there's a, there's four years of, of uh, content, if you care to listen to that, uh, at dbcnextdimension.lipson.com. And we're on iTunes. You can also find us on Facebook. But, uh, yeah, thank you very much. And thank you very much for uh, inviting me. I know we planned this uh, a while ago. Yeah. But I'm, 
I'm happy that uh, we got to do this. No, I am too. This was great. And uh, while uh, while you're heading out, I'm gonna uh, take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this. Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. So my original plan for this segment of the episode, the solo part, was to take a pretty thorough look at the other two parts of the Robotech saga, Masters and New Generation. And I watched these two series in preparation for the for this episode. But as I was getting my notes together and I was editing my conversation with Don, I realized that I didn't have as much to say about Masters and New Gen. And I didn't want to take too much away from my conversation with with Donovan, which I really, really enjoyed having. But I do want to put coverage in here because I said I would, obviously. And I did want to take a look at the, the Robotech saga in its entirety, as far as at least this original 84-episode series goes. Now, there are spinoffs, as we both mentioned. There were 
uh, efforts through novels and comics to continue the story. In some cases, uh, some were better than others. In a lot of cases, it was just sort of a watered-down sequel-itis attempt at things. So tread cautiously when trying to track down a lot of the Robotech 2 The Sentinel stuff. Um, I would recommend tracking down the McKinney novels if you can, either uh, on eBay in paperback at a used bookstore or through <clears throat> means on the internet uh, because they're worth the look and they're worth the read. Uh, the comics, like Don said, I I've heard mixed things about the Robotech 2 comics, the Sentinels comics, beyond the Comico, uh, beyond like what Comico had produced as far as Robotech comics. So again, Take that as you will. I, I, I can't make any recommendations, good or bad. But as far as the story is concerned, as far as, as far as the original series is concerned, I'm going to take a look at these two series. So I'm going to start with Masters, and I'm going to give a plot synopsis of both, and then give my short review, and then we'll we'll, uh, we'll be done. Masters is the second generation of Robotech, and that is taken quite literally. It follows the Army of the Southern Cross, and is specifically a tank battalion, uh, this is who we're looking at, that is headed up by Dana Sterling. Dana is the daughter of my favorite Robotech couple, Max and Miria Sterling, and by the time that Masters opens, she's about 20 years old. So that much time has passed since the original Robotech Expeditionary Force headed off into space at the beginning of what was supposed to be the Sentinels, you know, after the end of Macross. And Dana has grown up to be one of the many who are tasked with defending the Earth from other alien threats. Those other alien threats come in the form of the Robotech Masters, who are the creators and overlords of the Zentradi. The Masters, who are running low on protoculture, have traveled across the cosmos to the Earth so that they can take the protoculture matrix, the thing that creates that energy that is within the wreckage of the SDF-1. The Masters attack, they lay waste to quite a bit of the army, but after some reinforcements arrive, there's a long stalemate, and one that causes the Masters to create a clone of Zor. Zor is the member of their race who created the SDF-1 and then sent it to Earth in sort of a Prometheus stealing fire from the gods to give to man sort of way. Zor infiltrates the Southern Cross easily because he actually has no idea who he is and no idea what he's been sent to do. Uh, so they kind of use him to spy. You know, they, they're seeing through him. And he and Dana end up falling for one another. And while I, I'm summarizing very broadly here because I'm skipping over major subplots and other characters, uh, but this all leads to a climax where Dana and Zor enter the wreckage of the SDF-1 and they release the contents of of what was left of the protoculture matrix throughout the environment on Earth, which stops the Master's plans. It also should be noted that militarily, space fighty, the Masters are eventually defeated and destroyed as well. But the ending of Masters, or at least the ending that was put together for the sake of connecting Masters and New Generation, is more ambiguous. At the end of Macross, you have this final attack and this sense that... We will rebuild, we've grown, there's a future ahead of us, even though like half the cast is dead. At the end of Masters, it's okay, we've defeated them when we released this, but you're not sure if that's a good thing or not. And what Dana actually ends up doing is releasing something called the Invid Flower of Life. Now, I was trying to understand this through reading, uh, through watching the show, but the master, but apparently, protoculture as this energy source evolves 
over time and eventually kind of blooms as eventually as this flower of life that the invid cultivate but the masters are not able to harness the power of protoculture in that form so what they were trying to do was get to the protoculture before it evolved to this form again it's a little clucky in places it's a little dense but uh, we're supposed to believe that her releasing this scuttled any plans they had for getting their, their energy back. And then eventually they kind of, between self-destructing and being destroyed, uh, that threat was over. But the problem is the Invid. The Invid are a race that have been warring with the Robotech Masters and the Zentradi for, I guess it's implied, like centuries. And they're a race that's way more insect-like in its ways. Uh, they have a queen, they have a hive mind. There's a little bit of Borg in there as well, even though the Borg, this predates the Borg by, by years. Um, they wind up being attracted to the release of the Flower of Life from all the way out in space. So when the third series opens... The Invid are invading Earth. They invade Earth and they lay waste to the planet, including all of its defenses and subsequent efforts to get them off the planet. Scott Bernard is part of one of those efforts to get him off the planet, and, and Scott manages to survive this huge space battle that goes totally sideways for the Robotech Expeditionary Force. And he crash lands on Earth. And his mission now is to find a giant Invid hive known as Reflex Point so that he can destroy it and therefore destroy the Invid themselves. All he has with him is his cycle, and it's this really cool motorcycle that transforms, but the transformation becomes a body armor. So it's not like the huge Veritech, where like you know, it's, you're flying a huge plane and then transforms into a huge robot. It's, it's a human-sized one, but it's really great. I actually had that toy. Now, the toy didn't transform. It was just a cycle, and I don't think it came with a figure, so I used to put my G.I. Joe figures on it, but it was really, really cool looking, and I love how they do that in the thing. Okay, back to the synopsis. So, he's got his cycle, and his mission is to get to a giant Invid Hive that has become known as Reflex Point. And there's a point in the series where they show one of the characters holding this kind of really crude map, and we're supposed to, it's implied that the Southern Cross was somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, which I think there's a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song. We look at the map and Reflex Point is enormous and it takes up a lot of like the Eastern part of the United States. So they're journeying up through South America, Central America to the United States and the Reflex Point is just this huge, huge hive. And that's his mission. He has to get there and anybody, I think it's implied that anybody who survived, that was their mission. Get to Reflex Point the, and, and with the hopes that the army's going to be there and they're going to launch an invasion. So that's where we are. And all he has with him is his cycle. He gathers eventually a team of disparate rebels and they accompany him on this mission. You have Rand, who he meets in like the first episode or two. He's this survivalist guy. Rook, who's this woman who's also like a really good motorcyclist, this motorcycle transformation motorcycle thing. And she's a really, really good fighter, too. And I think she was part of like a motorcycle gang or something at one point. There's an episode about her uh, background. Lunk is a mechanic who at one point was part of the Robotech Expeditionary Force, uh, but left in kind of disgrace or has sort of a... It's implied that there's just like trauma in his past, and uh, and and it, they don't go kind of heavy on the PTSD angle, but there's this 
something's holding him back from fighting. Lancer is another freedom fighter who has another life as a woman pop singer named Yellow Dancer. So he basically performs in drag, which is a pretty cool idea, although I will say there's the unfortunate she's a guy bit. Annie, and then there's Annie. Annie's this loudmouth kid who can be a little bit irritating as a character at times, but is not as irritating as some other kids' sidekicks. She's more like the she's more of the pidge of the group. In fact, her and Lunk are kind of hunk and pidge, so I, I can let it go. Anyway, later on in their journey, they pick up someone named Marlene, and she is actually it's very, very much like Zor. She's uh, an invid woman who has been created by the invid queen who doesn't really remember who she is and she's sent to infiltrate the group as a spy and basically what the new generation series is as i mentioned it's a journey to a reflex point and it combines elements of what you would really see from a number of post-apocalyptic war focused movies from this era our band of people inches its way toward Reflex Point. They avoid invid shock troopers. They try their best not to get killed whenever they enter a new town. And at the end, they join the army at the hive at Reflex Point. And there's even this sort of conflict among them in that Scott's like, okay, I've gone this far with all of you, but now I'm rejoining my army and you're not my army and I have to follow my orders. And they're all like, oh, we've helped you this whole time. Why are you rejecting us now? Like that sort of thing. And uh, the series ends with the Invid Queen evolving into what I can guess be described... Well, the best way I can describe it is by using the final episode's title, which is Symphony of Light. And Scott decides to take off into the space to find Rick Hunter and rejoin the Robotech Expeditionary Force while everybody else stays on Earth to rebuild. And that's the synopsis. Now, these two series are not as famous as Macross... They're also not, both of them are not as long. Uh, Macross has way more episodes, but they do continue the story in a way that works really well and shows something that you don't always get. What happens when the main characters of a space saga like this head off into space? You know, they have they went on their mission of discovery, find the planet, bring the war to the masters, or whatever they had to do. What happens on Earth? What about everybody they left behind? And I really like that angle. But the thing is, I think that the reason they're not as well known, or maybe not as well loved, is because they, they drag a little more. Or at least that's the case with the Masters. Masters is this dark middle chapter. It's a bit of a slog, too. When I was re-watching it, I had to go back and remember what I had actually seen or remembered seeing when I originally watched the show 30 years ago. And what I was remembering from having read the Jack McKinney novels. And I honestly, I think that most of my appreciation I have for the Master Series comes from the novels. Because the only thing I remember about the Master Series, honestly, was the last episode. A lot of what I was watching, I felt like I was watching it for the first time, even though I remember watching it 30 years ago. The, Mas the McKinney novels and the Masters flesh out details that connected to Macross Saga and the Master Saga, as well as some of the characters in a way that the television series did not. So that's why I really recommend those novels, as controversial as they sometimes are as far as what I've read among Rotec fandom when I was researching like the novels themselves um, and how they're kind of not canon and stuff. 
they're really enjoyable. Like the 18 that I that I watch, that I read, I didn't read the kind of in between ones that came out after End of the Circle. So, like I said in the in the macro sequence, go back, find them, read them. Keep into account that they diverge in places from the from the 84 episodes of television, but in and of themselves, in their own context, they're really good, and I really enjoy them. All right, but the Masters, the series, it starts out strong. You get you get a first episode that's sort of a clip show of Macross footage to just explain who Dana Sterling is and her backstory with Maximiria, but then the Masters come and they're a legitimate threat. You know, and you have some great space battle stuff, but it stalls. It stalls until Zor shows up and we build to the climax. But and and Dana, Dana is a character. Dana should be one of those great, like, I have to prove myself characters, because like her pedigree is somebody like who are people who are really famous from the first Robotech War. And but she's whiny and she's irritating throughout much of that first half. And if I'm being honest, there's only so many times that I can see her in the shower. There's also so many times that I can see the same kind of war story episodes. Like, it seems like they keep attacking and they're pushed back, and they keep attacking and they're pushed back, and I know that's warfare. I mean, there are entire swatches of World War One where nothing happens. All right, not true. Movements don't happen. Troop advancements don't happen. It's this huge stalemate. Nothing happens except for like bodies piling up, and that happens through a lot of the Masters saga. And I applaud the producers and writers from giving us that aspect of war, but it's not the most interesting thing for an after-school cartoon. The Masters is an enemy. They are formidable, and uh, the main ones we see have this Palpatine-esque look about them that I really, really like. But I will say that everyone else on the Master's ship seems to be, well, less interplanetary, more warmonger, and more reject from a Kajagugu tribute band. But I did like the ambiguity of the ending in the last episode. Uh, We're not entirely sure if Dana did the right thing. And if you stop there, you're like, okay, they defeated the Masters, but at what cost? And it's you have to go to the opening of the very next series to see what that cost is. And I like that. In fact, her releasing the Flower of Life actually dooms the planet. I want to say that she's not on Earth when the Invids show up, and that her band of soldiers, the Southern Cross Army, did what Scott did at the end of the New Generation, which is take off to join the RAF. Mainly because, in the like I said, in the Sentinels novels that I read, they did have her in there. So I want to say that she's it's not like she's killed or anything when the Invid invade. The only thing I don't like about the way that they bridge the gap between the two series, which is in the very first episode of the New Generation, is that the Invid invasion is shown through a series of matte paintings. And then like one battle sequence is the battle sequence that ends with Scott surviving and beginning his mission on the ground to go to Reflex Point. I don't know the backstory to why it was put together like this. And to be completely honest with you, I want to say that it probably came about this way because it would have required almost an entire episode's worth of new animation and production. And the matte paintings and the voiceover that was done was just much cheaper to produce. And I'm going to say that's the case. And it's kind of a shame because if you if I think back to Dole's attack uh, in the original Macross saga... It's so horrific, and it's so devastating. 
I think the Infant Invasion would have just been like just like that. It was set this really great tone and had a really great impact on the rest of the show. And it kind of does in those map paintings and stuff, but I would have loved to see that animated in the same way that they did Dulce's uh, attack in the Macross saga. That being said, I still really like the new generation, uh, which, by the way, I, I always I never refer to it as the new generation. I always called it the Invid series. Um, and it, honestly, it's because like the enemies are scarier. They look really cool. And there's a defined purpose to the show. Yes, there are a few episodes that drag out a little. And there are times when the storyline involving Mar Marlene as the Invid spy feels, well... It's like we've done this before. It becomes a bit tired, but then you've got the invid. They're this badass-looking enemy, and we have this great exploration of one of Robotech's main themes throughout all three series, which is really the meaning of humanity. The Zentradi and Masters had both looked at this and been curious at times, and at also at times horrified by expressions of things such as love and other emotions. And the Invid are also curious, but it also ties into this idea that the Invid are constantly trying to evolve. For instance, the Warriors are really the Mecha themselves. Like, the Invid don't really have a life form. It's like they inhabit the Mecha, and evolution to the Invid Queen is upgrading that Mecha. But the evolution eventually takes on a life form aspect, like an organic life form aspect, because the Invid herself, and she has, like, two others who are, who are um, like, a prince and princess type. They take a humanoid form. And then she evolves past that at the end and takes the rest of the race with her. I like that this is done, and I like that it's done parallel to the Scott Bernard storyline about him going to Reflex Point, and it's all couched in this effort of the Queen to find a way to defeat the humans. Furthermore, there are things to consider about how, how all the races involved have become reliant upon and addicted to this form of energy that they refer to as protoculture. But the overarching themes of New Generation don't get in the way of the action that we need to see, which is the trip to Reflex Point. And I think a way that it does get in the way of stuff in like the Masters and at times in Macross. And while New Generation has its slower moments, it's it's all this this, this great way to show a post-apocalyptic world, or at least a world that has been deeply affected by these events. We don't always get to see that in cartoons. Sometimes it feels like comics and cartoons try to happen in some sort of vacuum. And by having the Robotech Force in the series be hard-traveling heroes, we get to see how the rest of humanity is dealing with having scary alien overlords. In some cases, it's a great look at collusion between invaders and opportunists, and in other cases, it's downright scary, with humans being used as slaves in other ways. There's something very War of the Worlds about this particular generation of Robotech, and that's one of the reasons I really like it. So I would recommend going on to Netflix uh, while you can. I, as far as this recording is concerned, at the time of this recording, which is July 2017, it's still up. The entire series. It's listed as one season, but it's like 84 episodes, and they just go through the whole thing. Watch it. Watch it all the way through. It's really fun. It really holds up well. And in the very least, it's some fun nostalgia. And I think you'll get more out of it than just, just that. I'd like to thank Donovan for coming on to discuss Macross. It was really fun. We both really enjoyed it. Please go and check out all of his stuff. 
And speaking of stuff, there will be some notes and videos on the blog post and show notes that accompany this episode. Keep checking the blog for more essays and show notes. I'm going to get into more of a regular habit of writing essays on the and blog posts on the blog, especially as in-country and origin story wrap themselves up, and I'm left with this and required reading. More origin story is coming your way in the next few months. As I wrap all of that up, as of this recording, I have episode 27 will be next. Episode 28 of Origin Story, by the way, germane to this podcast, will be out the first week in August and will feature Robotech the Macross Saga issue 21 from Comico. So check that out as well. And there's 33 episodes in that series, so I've got about like five or six left to go. And one last piece of business, Pop Culture Affidavit now has a Twitter feed. You can find that at, at @popaff, P O P A F F. So please go and follow me, retweet, share whatever. I've gotten a few tweets out. I'm getting the hang of managing multiple Twitter accounts cuz now I have like 4 uh, one for work, one personal, and then two for the two of the podcasts that I have. The other one being for required reading with Tom and Stella. But uh, that's where I'm kind of diversifying my my social media a little bit. And that's where I'd be able to follow most of my stuff, posts and updates and things. And of course, the Facebook page is still active. uh, So go ahead and like that. And and if you want to leave a review on iTunes, I haven't had one of those in a while. That would be pretty cool. But as far as this is concerned, this is going to close the book on Robotech, at least for this particular show. I will be back in a few weeks with another special guest, a friend of mine, former colleague who has never podcasted before, but she and I are going to go back 30 years to talk about one of our all-time favorite movies, which is The Princess Bride. So until then, take care, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.